1: If you were anywhere near the Fulton County Courthouse in downtown Atlanta yesterday, you may have heard an enormous thud emanating from the clerk of the court's office as Donald Trump's Georgia lawyers, Jennifer Little, Drew Findling, and Marissa Goldberg, dropped a filing, a motion, uh, 52 pages long to Mar Hallerman, who I'll introduce in a minute, 52-page uh, filing with 431 more pages of, of exhibits in which they essentially are asking for everything that the Fulton County Special Grand Jury has done be thrown out uh, and not allowed to be used to pursue any kind of case against Donald Trump and his allies. It was a nuclear bomb, and we're going to start the show by talking about that with our panel today. Um, and there's a theme to this uh, show. Thanks to senior producer Natalie Mendenhall, who put it all together for us. We're going to talk criminal justice uh, in Georgia and beyond. So let's get right to our panel. As I said, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tamar, you and your colleague Bill Rankin have been all over the Fulton County Special Grand Jury. And somehow we always get lucky that the big stories in this break in time for us to have you as our regular Tuesday uh, panelists, thanks for being here today.
0: Well, thank you for having me. And depending on, on how you look at it, this is either the, the story, you know, where where this is the song that never ends, or it's the gift who keeps on giving. <laughs> uh, so there, there's always plenty <laughs> to talk about, and I'm so happy to be here.
1: Yeah, well, we're very happy you are as well. Uh, Anthony Michael Christ, professor of constitutional law at Georgia State University, is back with us. I'm glad you're here today, Anthony, because I look forward to hearing you help us understand all of the um, accusations in this filing, which suggests that, among other things, uh, what they did in some ways was unconstitutional. We'll get to that in a minute. But in the meantime, thanks for being here, Anthony.
2: Good morning. Glad to be here. And uh, I'm very happy for uh, Tamar's lamb chop sing-along reference. So we're off to a good start.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Tiffany Williams-Roberts is back. She's the public policy director for the Southern Center for Human Rights. Tiffany, we're always happy to have you here, and especially on a show about criminal justice. We're very pleased, given that's a lot of what the work is that you all do at the Southern Center. Hi, Tiffany.
3: Hi, Bill. Such a pleasure to be here. We certainly have a lot to discuss.
1: Yeah, we do. And we're welcoming to the show for the first time Madeline Figpet, criminal justice reporter at Capital B. Um, Madeline, we're really pleased that you could join the show. Um, We should tell people a little bit about you. You said you're from New Jersey. Uh, You uh, worked down here uh, first at the Atlanta Voice and went over to Capital B for criminal justice to be a criminal justice reporter. But maybe most important, you and Tamar Hallerman have something in common. You both are graduates of American University.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, Good morning, Bill. Thank you for having me. And uh, go Eagles.
1: <laughs> okay. All right. Um let's get right to it. Tomorrow um this 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 I don't even know how to describe the size and scope of this uh filing. It's as if uh the Trump Georgia lawyers threw everything they could up against the wall and are just looking to see if something sticks. Yeah, it's
0: a bit of a kitchen sink filing. Um they say that the entire grand jury that the statutes that led to its creation were kind of unconstitutionally vague, they want, um, you know, their report to be expunged, they don't want any evidence that the special grand jury uncovered to be used, they want to they want to um, sideline the Fulton DA's office. They say they have not been conducting this investigation in a professional manner. And not only that, but they also want to sideline Judge Robert McBurney, who's been overseeing this special grand jury uh, for the last eight months. And so um, a pretty remarkable uh, motion. And we are expecting a response from the DA's office in the days ahead and potentially a hearing. Uh, They were asking that Judge McBurney not be the judge to oversee that in a hearing, which it would typically be his. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see how the Fulton Superior Court responds to an attack like that on their one of their own members.
1: So Anthony, there's a lot to unpack here, but, but let's start with this notion that they are asking that McBurney uh, not preside over any further actions uh, involved in this case. Um, is there anything reasonable about that, given the fact that, um, to some extent, they, they are, if not overtly, implicitly critical of McBurney's behavior in this.
2: Well, I think all of the positions that have been taken <clears throat> by the Trump legal team in this filing are completely without merit uh, and they're baseless. In particular, the, assess- the, the assessment of Judge McBurney's behavior, I think, is... Um, Somewhat delusional to be blunt, because Judge McBurney, I think throughout this, has probably been the most upstanding character in this entire uh drama. So uh to me, Judge McBurney throughout this process has always been over, you know, trying to be protective of the special purpose grand jury and their work. He's been thorough, he's been highly consider uh, considerable, uh, or have, has made a lot of considerations. Uh, of the interests of potential defendants and and uh, the interests of the prosecution. So I, I think it's, uh, again, I think it's really a meritless claim that he has done anything to undermine the investigation's quality or that would warrant removing him from, from consideration of further proceedings.
1: Anthony, let me ask you one more question before we bring in the rest of the panel. Um, one of the uh, claims in this is that when when McBurney— Recused Fonnie Willis from continuing to investigate Burt Jones because of a political conflict he found. She had been part of a fundraiser for his uh, uh, Democratic opponent, and so said that she didn't feel he didn't feel she could continue uh, in an objective way dealing with Burt Jones, who was a target of the investigation. And the, the Trump lawyers argue that once that happened, it really suggested that everything that Fonnie Willis did uh, had a a political lens to it, and therefore, from that moment on, this should not have gone forward with her leading the investigation. What do you make of that?
2: I think what the Trump legal team is essentially saying is that any investigation or potential prosecution Mm. of Donald Trump and his allies is illegitimate if it's done by a Democrat. And that's just simply not— plausible as a legal theory. And and so with the Burton Jones situation, there was a a more uh, clear, demonstrable uh, conflict that was created when Fonnie Willis had that campaign event for an opponent of Burt Jones. It's not this kind of mere whiff or hint of a conflict, right? That Judge McBurdy said there is more concrete uh, conflict there. And so that kind of relationship that that disqualified the Fulton County DA's office from further proceedings with respect to the Lieutenant Governor. That that same dynamic does not exist when it comes to Donald Trump. So I think what this this filing is doing is comparing apples and oranges, and they're just doing this in order to gum up the works and to 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 de, to delay the process from proceeding in an expeditious uh, manner because. For, for the Trump team, the, the delay is re- really what they're ultimately after.
1: Yeah. Um, Tiffany, I don't know Jennifer Little or Marissa Goldberg, but I do know Drew Findling and and know the kinds of criminal defense work he's done. He's very aggressive, often quite pugnacious. He's defended some people who are unsavory, to say the least. Sometimes he wins, sometimes he loses. Um, so it's not surprising that this is as bold and aggressive a uh, a document as as it is. But I also have to suggest it kind of smells like fear to me, uh, Tiffany.
3: All right. So Drew uh, Findling is a notable criminal defense attorney, not just in Georgia, but across the country. And uh, the criminal legal system is extremely adversarial. But uh, I'm sure that Drew is thinking about the success rate of Uh, this district attorney's office, or or really any district attorney's office across the country. And there is a need uh, to zealously represent your client, um, regardless of how the world feels about the client's actions. And when you take on a case, uh, especially a media case like this, um, that is uh, intensified, I think. And so when uh, I believe the coverage was that it was just throwing something at a wall and seeing what sticks, that's not uncommon in criminal legal Litigation, I just think that all eyes are on this case, so it feels a little bit different than, let's say, other cases involving um, multiple account indictments um, or people who others just really don't like.
1: Yeah, Madeline, maybe, I mean, obviously I'm completely speculating, but let me just explain a little more what I mean. Um, It does feel... Like, um, if Donald Trump directed that they take this action, and I assume he had a big role in all of this, perhaps especially in the dismissal, the request to dismiss McBurney, um, it smells like he's the one who is increasingly fearful, not just of what's happening here, but what's happening in New York. And this is a very aggressive response
4: yeah and i think we've sort of seen the rhetoric for the pre- from the president continue to escalate um the former president he called for protests because mm. of a supposed arrest that's supposed to happen today so i don't really think it's that surprising that he would um, direct his attorneys to call out the district attorney and the judge in this case
1: tomorrow um What is the, Anthony already referred to it, but what is the possibility, to the best of your knowledge, that this filing can slow down the work that uh, Willis is trying to do to um, get indictments out there or to not pursue indictments? How does this gum up the works for her, if at all?
0: I think, I mean, there, there's very much a risk of that. And I'm still talking with folks to try and get a feel for how likely it is or, or some of the mechanics behind all this works. There might be affidavits that need to be filed, and I'm not that's not 100% clear to me yet. But as Anthony said, delay is Donald Trump's best friend. Um, and this is something that we've seen him use throughout his career whenever he's been in legal troubles, uh, but especially when it comes to an investigation like this and a case that could take several years. Remember, he's running for the Republican presidential nominee Um, He does not want to be in court while this is going down, and to a certain degree, talking about this looming legal threat kind of helps him with his narrative that, you know, the establishment is out to get him this deep state, these liberal prosecutors. And so this plays into his narrative as well. Um, And it is possible, I think, that it could delay a potential indictment as this gets appealed up and down the the legal system. And judges will want to get a piece of this because, of course, this is such a novel case, you know, no u s. President has ever been indicted. And so people are going to want to be very careful in their um, very careful in their um legal decision making and and pr- potentially take their time on this,
2: Anthony. So <laughs> I think a couple of things are important here. First, I think it's, of course, true that criminal defense attorneys owe to their clients, right, the most zealous defense that they can put on. At the same time, lawyers, owe to the court's candor, and they should be making arguments that are actually legitimate and plausible. Uh, the arguments that have been made in this document are not plausible. They are, in fact, uh, right, completely meritless, almost, I think, to the point of being frivolous. What they're attempting to do is to get a couple of rulings on some of these points to stick so they can make what is known as an interlocutory appeal. Right, They want to be able to appeal immediately and gum things up through the appellate courts and to prevent anything from going on until these issues are resolved, as opposed to appealing this at the back end of of a potential conviction. So they want all of this to be decided pre-trial. But ultimately what's strange about this is a couple of things. One, they want the the evidence, not just the evidence, but the report suppressed. There is no legal mechanism to quash a report. That's just not a thing. So they're making kind of strange arguments in that sense, but they're also trying to kind of create a different standard for the former president of the United States than would apply to anybody else nobody else would get you know would be able to pre you know preempt a, a an indictment that doesn't exist so i'm not even sure that the courts have jurisdiction to decide this right now because there is no controversy there is no indictment. We don't know what they're going to do. Um, no other potential criminal defendant in the world would be able to stop an investigation simply because they don't like it. And and the final point I'll make um is, you know, the the special purpose grand juries are an investigative body they are not a petit jury they are not there to decide ultimate guilt or innocence they're there to be a de facto arm of the Fulton County District Attorney's office and so this idea that we're going to hold the Fulton County DA's office and the and the, the special purpose grand jury to a different standard just because it's Donald Trump former president of the United States i think is really you know problematic in terms of how we treat Different defendants in the criminal justice system. And and this is really, I, I think, at the heart of the matter. There's They are trying to put one standard in for Donald Trump and another for everybody else. And they're making these very frivolous, very tenuous arguments in order to get there.
0: And it's it's also worth noting why they're trying to disqualify um, Judge McBurney, Fulton DA, Fonnie Willis, and even the special grand jurors. And they're citing in many cases comments that they made to the media. They were very critical that DA Willis has been, for the most part, pretty willing to talk to the press, especially early on in the investigation, that Judge McBurney spoke to news outlets like the AJC after the four woman Emily Coors uh, did her media tour, where he kind of clarified what the guidance. that he gave to, to jurors about what they could and couldn't say. And of course, the filing leans a lot on these comments that Emily Coors made to the media, the, the forewoman. And to them, they're saying it, it shows a really unprofessional, irresponsible um, investigation. And, and because of that, they think the results of that should be nullified.
1: Well, Tiffany, we knew from the day that Emily Coors talked to uh, uh, journalists, including uh, Tamar at the AJC, there was no question that the Trump legal team was going to try to somehow spin her observations into a case for dismissing all this because of so-called prejudice on, on her part. And perhaps uh, in, in, because they sort of allude to it in their filing, uh, a sort of frivolous nature to the whole investigation.
3: Yeah. So what we see a lot, especially coming from the DA, um, from the Willis District Attorney's Office, Um, and I know we're not talking about her contact specifically, but is this tendency to court the media in ways that really are on the line when it comes to Georgia Rules of Professional Conduct? Not to suggest that she's done anything un- unethical, but I I do believe that we have seen um an increased dependency on media uh, on media attention related to. Um, criminal cases or cases coming from that office. And what we're seeing now is how um, that can undermine the integrity. Even if we don't believe um, that the motion um, should be granted, we can see how there can be arguments made because of the intense hoarding of the media um, by D.A. Willis's office. And so um, I don't believe that there even if this juror had not spoken to anyone, I don't think that there was a way that Drew's team would not attack the integrity of this investigation. Um, but certainly, the yeah. according of the media, did them no favors.
1: Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, one other thing about this or two other things, really. Tomorrow, you and Bill Rankin uh, pointed out one sentence of the filing that I thought was particularly curious. It's this. President Trump was inextricably intertwined with this investigation since its inception. The effort under investigation squarely relate to his bid for a second term as president of the United States. This investigation began more than eight months ago, long before Donald Trump uh, announced intentions to run for re-election. So I found that a particularly curious line to include in their filing.
0: Yeah, the special grand jury was uh, impaneled in May of 2022. Uh, Trump did not announce his presidential campaign until November. And of Mm -hmm. course, this investigation was launched two years ago, uh, not long after his phone call with Brad Raffensperger. But a key argument that you see throughout this filing from Trump's lawyers is that they feel like all of this investigation violates kind of the, the fundamental fairness and due process rights for the former president. And so that's a central point that you see over and over again when they're talking about the remarks that uh, miss cores gave stuff that the da was was tweeting and telling the press and so that that speaks to that point
1: all right well we're going to watch how this unfolds uh in the days and weeks ahead but it's it was a bombshell when it landed uh yesterday in the uh clerk's office uh, I want to talk um, about another case that Fulton County District Attorney's Office is in the midst of. It is, it's getting some attention, of course, but Fannie Willis's uh, prime uh, presence in the media is around her efforts to deal with Donald Trump. But, Madeline, right now, um, there is a case unfolding in Fulton County Court that is comes out of the Fulton County District Attorney's Office It's called we're calling it the YSL trial, the Young Slime Life trial, in which uh, some 27, I think, maybe more uh, defendants, all who are associates of what the prosecutors claim is a criminal street gang, which includes some of the star rappers who uh, live in Atlanta. There are accusations of uh, everything from uh, murder to attempted murder. To uh robber. I mean, it's it's just it's a sprawling case. It's a case that's been very controversial. Uh trying to even impanel a jury has been virtually impossible because there are expectations this is going to go on for as long as uh, the trial could go on for well over half a year. And um funny, Willis has been getting some criticism for the way in which this case right now is moving so slowly kind of gumming up the legal system in Fulton County
4: yeah so uh you're right so it was Young Thug and 27 co-defendants that were listed in the original indictment um a number of those people have pled guilty so it's they're not all it's not all 27 that are currently on trial but um yeah there are a number of people who are from um the Cleveland Avenue area, young folks community who sort of feel like they don't know that this indictment is really going to make their community safer. Um, And yes, there have been a lot of issues with convening a jury. Jury selection is still going on. Um, And, you know, it's possible that this case could go even longer than the um, cheating scandal case with Atlanta Public Schools, which is the current longest case in Ford County Superior Courts.
1: Tomorrow, I, want to, I know you're going to have to leave us in a few minutes, so I'd love to get your take and then ask the rest of the panel. Um, when, when Willis talks about this, she says, our office can handle this, we have no problems. But, but in some ways, it isn't just an issue of whether her office can handle this. It's the question of you have any number of defendants in this who have been sitting in the county jail for months and months awaiting trial there are accusations from their lawyers right now that you know the 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 MLK line justice deferred is justice denied. There are attorneys who are saying we have other cases that we can't even take on. We're going to have to get rid of because of this. So, uh, so it's we don't want to just say gee, poor Fannie, Fannie Willis. This is also about the people who are awaiting trial and and uh, not getting to uh, be heard in court.
0: Yeah, this seems like a real bottleneck of a case that, as you mentioned, could gum up at least uh, Judge Glanville's court for uh, almost a year. And uh, as you mentioned, the the jail in Fulton County is is overflowing. And so a lot of the defense attorneys are talking about that in the context of this case. Um, And I think it is a bit of a Cautionary tale for DA Willis as she thinks about what she wants to do in this Trump investigation. Um, She is using the RICO Act, the racketeering statute, Mm -hmm. to go after Young Thug and his associates here and that's a law that she talks about how she's very comfortable with using she used it in the Atlanta public school case uh, successfully and it's a law that she's looking at in regard to this this Trump case there should she decide that she wants to indict people um using RICO you know it might not be 27 people in a Trump case but it still might be a sprawling multi-defendant case and while it might not happen in Ural Glanville's court, it could happen in federal court, um, I think the timing is still something for her to consider, especially as she thinks about resources and what her office should be doing um, in the year ahead.
1: All right. Um, I'd like to continue talking about this case for a little while, uh, but we do need to get to a break. So I'm going to do that now. We'll come back and talk more because I want to hear from Uh, both Tiffany and Anthony, about this. But in the meantime, I know, Tamar, you have to uh, move on. You've got to be at an interview in a little while. So I'm really happy you could join us for the first half of the show, because you're right in the heart of everything that's happening with the uh, Trump investigation. So I hope the rest of the day goes well for you. Thank you for being here. Tamar, let's take a break. Back with more in a minute. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Anthony Michael Kreiss, Tiffany Williams-Roberts, and Madeline Thigpen uh, continue with us on our show today. Tiffany, um, the among other things, and this is an area that the Southern Center is particularly interested in, um, we know that, uh, so, that, as we know, some of the defendants have taken plea deals of one sort or another, but still many, and I don't know the exact number, remain incarcerated. Um, while a jury, they're trying to get a jury impaneled for this case. And one of the things that we know uh, and that has been highlighted by their incarceration is just how dismal and inhumane the conditions are at the Fulton County Jail. Talk about that, because I know, again, that's something Southern Center is very concerned about.
3: Thank you for raising that, Bill. Yes, Southern Center has successfully sued the Fulton County Government over jail conditions four times, uh, and one of our lawsuits led to the to Fulton County being under a consent decree, which means the federal government is watching them to make sure that they abide by the terms of an order from. I believe it was um, it it was, the the consent decree ended in the mid twenty tens. Right now, what we're seeing from a report that the ACLU commissioned in September is 46% of the people who were then in the Fulton County Jail um, were unindicted, right? And so people are living in conditions uh, where uh, guards are not making regular rounds, where showers are running for weeks at a time because contractors are afraid to go through the jail um, to fix fixtures. um, And... uh, at times when the pipes burst people were without water entirely. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. For DA Willis to claim that she can handle the YSL trial when she can't even manage to indict or fully to um, expeditiously process cases, uh, other cases that her office has chosen to take on, right? So there is both a reluctance to scale back the scope and reach of the DA's office's prosecutions. And there is also a reluctance to create processes that um, triage these cases appropriately. Um, the the YSL trial, as you mentioned, came after DA Willis cut her teeth on RICO uh, prosecuting school teachers. And it demonstrates the overreach um, that our state's uh, RICO laws uh, enable. And so there are people languishing in jail uh, who cannot be, not only make bail, but can't even get to a bail hearing. And that's extremely problematic, especially because we are also in a shortage of we are experiencing a shortage shortage of attorneys.
1: Anthony, uh, please weigh in on this in any way you want to, but when you do, I'd also like you to add uh, this, if you will. One of the issues that's going to be uh, discussed in this trial and already is being discussed is uh, the lyrics to uh, some of the hip-hop music and whether or not that in some way can be used, they can be used as evidence of admissions of crimes or uh, a potential crimes.
2: Yeah, so I think the YSL trial is exposing a lot of the systemic problems that we have here in Georgia and some of the ways that the criminal justice system uh, interacts with certain communities in Georgia in a way that's unhealthy. Um, the the first thing I would say is I often think about a 1974 Jimmy Carter speech at the University of Georgia, where he, as governor, said that we had an obligation to improve the prison system in Georgia and to improve our jails, and that too often it is only the poor of Georgia who get left in these, these institutions, which are underfunded and under um, you know, understaffed and and are not great places to put people they're inhumane and that was 1974 it's 2023 we have not lived up to that call that was made by by Jimmy Carter when he was governor and so i think this this you know the stories that are coming out of this trial um you know it's not just Fulton County right there are other every other county has problems like this and state prisons have issues like this as well with the the lyrics uh, you know it's In some ways, it reminds me of the 1990s, right? Where where we're going to make all this political hay out of lyrics that are are forms of artistic expression. Um, They're not facts. They're not evidence. Um, And I think we really should be weary of prosecutors using artistic forms of expression as hard, fast evidence or as some kind of, uh, you know, you know, an emission of criminal activity when it's not. I mean, I write all the time. People write things all the time. People tweet, people write lyrics, people, um, you know, have blog posts and they use different forms of expression and use poetic license to to make sense of the world around them. And that may not make sense to everybody. It may definitely not make sense to a prosecutor who's looking at it through, right, this kind of uh, you know, lens of of the criminal justice system, and not a lens of artistic evaluation. And I think we really should be very uncomfortable with people using, uh, you know, just words in art as evidence of criminal wrongdoing. Madeline,
1: one of the things that strikes me as I try to figure out all of this for myself is that um, we don't really know exactly what evidence Fonnie Willis has against many of the defendants who are charged here. Um, but we we do know, number one, that there has been violence in the in the rap community, the hip-hop community across the country over the years. You know, hip-hop artists being killed by rival hip-hop artists and the like. So, you know, the public sees that in reality, and then maybe, to a certain extent, the way the public reacts, not the way a prosecutor does or a jury will eventually, sees it happening here, sees this this gang, the Young Slime Life gang, which in and of itself is a, a term that sounds uh, 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 frightening uh, to many of us. It's a black organization um, of people who say they're recording artists working together, not criminals. So it's very hard to escape the amount of prejudice that may go into how the public views all this as it unfolds.
4: Yeah, and I think that could lend to why it's been taking so long to pin down a jury for this trial. Um, I do think it's important to note that whenever we hear about lyrics being used in criminal trials, it's always rap lyrics. Um, And I think that specifically relates to the anti-blackness that we see in the criminal justice system. Um, something else that I did want to point out is that, um, yes, this uh, in the indictment, you know, YSL is named young, is named as Young Slime Life, the street gang. But it's important to point out that Young Thug's lawyer says, you know, YSL is not a criminal street gang, and that YSL only stands for his record label, Young Stoner Life. Um, so, yes, YSL is named as the gang in the indictment, but young and his lawyers have maintained that it is not a gang.
1: So, uh, Tiffany, just to give her due, here's what uh, uh, Fannie Willis said in a news conference at one point about this case. It does not matter what your notoriety is or what your fame is. If you come to Fulton County, Georgia, you commit crimes. And certainly if those crimes are in furtherance of a street gang... Then you are going to become a target and a focus of this district attorney's office, and we are going to prosecute you to the fullest extent of the law. And then she goes on to say that there's reason to believe that gangs, quote, are committing conservatively 75 to 80 percent of all the violent crime that we're seeing within our community. Tiffany.
3: So, Bill, it's important to note that Southern Center has on more than one occasion submitted open records requests for any data, raw or analyzed, to substantiate the claim that 80% of crime in Fulton County comes from street gang activity. What we know is using the term street gang activity um, is a hot button, right? It makes people react in ways they wouldn't, if you would explain um, the just the acts alleged. I, I'm concerned about uh, the activity in this DA's office looking a lot like uh, 2008 2009 I don't know if you remember when there was an there was uh, all of this commotion around a, a gang called 30 deep and every young person who was arrested uh, was accused of being in 30 deep after a bartender was killed in Grant Park. Da Willis said that she wants to look at ways to divert cases and handle the and handle criminal justice differently. But what we see is just sort of a reversion to tactics of the 1990s that will inevitably lead to more Black and Brown and poor children being disproportionately prosecuted and incarcerated in Georgia.
1: Tiffany, um, but one question. Sure. This none of this is to suggest that there may not have been significant criminal activity by some of those who Fani Willis has charged with crimes, right? What's
3: important, so that's not what I'm suggesting, um, but what I'm suggesting right, no. is the media, yeah, the media tactics that are being employed are pulling on the very worst impulses um, that we have that are related to systemic racism and the fears that we are taught to have of young Black people the way that she is courting the media in relation to this case, I think has just as much to do with her own image as it purportedly has to do with public safety.
1: All right. Um, Thank you for that conversation. Um, We're going to go move on from that specifically, but talk about some legislation down at the Capitol uh, that relates to gang activity. And we're going to talk about a report from the Urban League of Greater Atlanta that I think highlights even more how uh, disparities between blacks and whites in everything from employment uh, to housing to education have an impact on the criminal justice system. We'll do that and more after we take this final break. Anthony Michael Christ, I'm really happy you're here today because before we continue with the uh, subject of criminal justice, well, it actually is part of it, but I want to address something um, that um, a lot of listeners, we, I, I think I got more emails from people on a, on a similar theme after our show yesterday than I typically get. So I want to address it with you briefly. Yesterday, we spent a good deal of time. Talking about the fact that Trump claims he's about to be arrested, indicted. Talking about Alvin Bragg's case in Manhattan against Donald Trump, and what the panel said repeatedly on the show was that that case uh, may be one of the maybe the hardest of all of them to prove. It's a complicated case. It's based on untried legal theories, and um, and and what happened, uh, Anthony. Is that I got a lot of angry people saying, How dare you suggest that Donald Trump shouldn't be held accountable? Um, Which is not what we said at all. We said there's a difference between reprehensible behavior and what appears to be potentially criminal behavior and proving it in a court of law are completely separate matters. And it strikes me, Anthony, that people who believe that the way we should have dealt with that is just to say he's guilty are. Are, are ignoring the importance of the process of due legal process in the same way they accuse those Trumpers who protest and storm the Capitol ignored it.
2: So I, I think there are a few things that are worth considering in this process as things continue to unfold. In the New York case, there is certainly sufficient evidence to suggest that a misdemeanor occurred where there was an improper filing in in terms of business records, um, in trying to um, cover up the payment from Donald Trump to Stormy Daniels. I think that's absolutely, you know, an easier case to make. What's hard is to attempt to convert that into a felony by saying there was some other kind of fraud that was involved, and it's a really that's a bit of a stretch of the law. On top of that, this is a lot of evidence that's right seven years old. Uh, It's also similar to a case that was brought against uh, former Senator John Edwards from North Carolina that failed. Mm. So I think that there's a lot of considerations to be made there. And I think at the same time, we might want to consider always, why are we pursuing something? Why is something in the interest of justice here? I don't know if this particular case is really in the grand scheme of things, in the grand arc of justice, the most important and pressing matter. I think that the George case, I think that the federal cases are exponentially more important because they speak to the heart of our democracy. They speak to the heart of the rule of law and the peaceful transition of power. Um, and that's a much more important case to make than what's happening in New York. That being said, If there is evidence of of wrongdoing there and a case can be brought and a conviction secured, then there's no reason why Donald Trump should not be held to account in the same way that anyone else. I
1: sort of wanted thank you. I just sort of wanted to defend yesterday's panel by saying no one is suggesting that Donald Trump is anything but a reprehensible character and who deserves uh, to face. Uh, 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 justice, Uh, the question is whether uh, the the Manhattan DA has what it takes to get him for a felony offense. All right, enough of that. Um, Madeline, um, we're talking about gangs when we talk about YSL. Uh, Yesterday, the State House passed a bill promoted by uh, Governor Kemp as part of his Get Tough on Crime agenda this session, which would uh, have... Create severe penalties for people who recruit uh, um, gang members to be a uh, part of the gang. Ten years uh, for uh, your involvement in recruiting someone, and it could be more than that if um, there are repeated offenses. Here's the governor's house. Floor, one of the governor's house floor leaders, Sue Hong, explaining why she thinks it's important.
3: We are sending a strong message with this bill that if you come into our state and you are recruiting our children, then we will have severe punishment for you. Through this bill, um, we are helping our victims. Uh, We are helping victims of gang activity as well as our children from being recruited into
1: gangs. So, Madeline, that bill passed by a big margin.
4: Yeah, and um, I also heard a Democratic legislature member, um, I don't remember her name, but she mentioned that, you know, the majority of the people who are recruiting kids into gangs are not, you know, people coming from out of state. They're other kids who are in gangs. Um, And I do also want to point to something that I read actually just this morning. The Council on Criminal Justice found that in 2020, Black people were almost 30% more likely to receive a long sentence than white people. Um, And I think that really just speaks to the fact that legislation like this, um, while it's sort of passed and pushed through as a way to get tough on crime, to reduce crime, reduce violent crime, in the long run, what really ends up happening is longer sentences for black people, for poor people, for the people who the criminal justice system inevitably does not really work to serve.
1: Uh, Tiffany, here is the representative that Madeline is talking about. It's Democrat Tanya Miller. Here's what she said.
3: This bill is not supported by facts and what is actually happening in our communities as it relates to the recruitment of young people into gangs. Here is a news flash. There's not some big homie from LA that's taking a plane to Georgia, creeping around playgrounds and recruiting teenagers to become members of the gangster disciples. It is far more likely that the people who are recruiting children into criminal street gangs are themselves children.
1: Tiffany, did this bill specifically relate to people coming in from out of state to uh, recruit, or does it involve anybody who tries to recruit someone to join a gang?
3: It doesn't uh, specifically discuss interstate travel, but the messaging around the bill, um, quote, if you come to our state and recruit children, suggests that there is this outside boogeyman uh, attacking Georgia's children. And we're not in 1980. This is not the 80s or the 90s. We know an awful lot about how young people come to be recruited into underground street gangs or into underground economies. And what we know is that this bill is nothing but recycled failed tactics. Georgia law is, Georgia's gang statutes is one of the most um, difficult statutes to beat, right? It's a very tough statute. This statute would allow children to be uh, to be prosecuted, children as young as 13, to be prosecuted for recruiting another child. There are a host of other issues raised by this bill, but the what we are seeing right now is this impulse to say, well, we've got to do something, but then there isn't an impulse that accompanies that to say, we've got to do something that we know works. Um, Representative Miller is absolutely right. This bill was not supported by data, Georgia's existing law is already draconian, and this will do nothing but usher black and brown and poor children, especially in places outside of Atlanta, into the criminal legal system in a fashion that was is faster than um, than we already had, which is already accept- unacceptable.
1: Tiffany, one of the ironies I think some people who support this sort of uh, legislation believe is true, is that it is often uh, black people themselves. Who are the victims of gang-related violence. So the, the horrible stories of a young child who is caught in the crossfire between uh, gang members and is murdered um, out of nowhere. It, it, it does suggest that, that the Black community is as much a victim of this as, as anybody else in, in our uh, state. And
3: what does it feel like to be a victim on both sides, right? you've got communities ravaged by the war on drugs by by being under-resourced you don't find in black communities what what black communities want that are impacted by violence is for the violence to stop that means we have to look seriously at at gun violence as a public health crisis we've got to consider seriously the impact of education on young people even things like hunger food insecurity Drives children to find resources in street games, right? What are we doing when we are robbing Black communities of the resources needed for their for their members to thrive, and then on the other hand, also <clears throat> prosecuting them and warehousing them in our prisons?
1: So, um, Anthony, to pick up on what Tiffany is saying, is I, I mentioned before the break, the uh, Urban League of Greater Atlanta just issued a a, a major report, their first on uh, uh, Black people in Georgia. And uh, they gathered resources from many uh, different organizations, and they looked at national uh, uh, data uh, as well. And, and w- one of the things that they talk about in the report is um, the, the number of uh, uh, schools in black communities that are uh, not good, uh, where students are not getting a particularly good education, uh, they talk about single-parent families where there's not as much discipline in terms of children uh, being uh, it, going to school. And I want to read one uh, part of the report. They say, a study by the literacy advocacy organization Literacy Mid-South concludes, quote, there is a strong connection between early low literacy skills and the U.S.'s exploding incarcer- incarceration rates. The study further concludes that 85 percent of all juveniles who interface with the juvenile court system are functionally low literate. And what they do point out in this report is how much larger the percentage is of black students who are not reading at third grade level when they need to be than uh, white students. So Tiffany makes his point. Um, the s- simple answer is to point at uh just uh, increase, increasing incarceration potential, not dealing with the holistic problem.
2: It, the problem with the way we address <clears throat> a lot of issues in Georgia, dealing with race, you know, racial justice and and the like, is that um, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And what we have to do is take a more comprehensive approach and look more systemically at. Ways in which to invest in communities, including namely in education, because I think education, of course, is right the greatest source of, of liberation. But instead of investing in communities, instead of investing in institutions, uh, we're looking at ways to be more punitive. And at the same time, advancing legislation that would take money out of the public school system by creating this voucher system, uh, which would would just potentially decimate, I think, some public schools. But at the same time, it's probably not going to help the students that are purportedly the ones in the most need of help. It'll just further enrich those who are already well-off and well-resourced to put money into private school systems. So I, I think we really need to take a step back. And start asking ourselves, are we trying to just be a, a, a state that values retribution, or do we want to value rehabilitation? Do we want to only address things on the back end of the criminal justice system, or do we want to invest in people so that they can succeed, so that they don't feel the need to turn to criminal activity or turn to other groups for resources and support?
1: Um. Thank you. Tiffany, one last item before we run out of time completely, uh, a bill that did not pass was a bill that would establish definitions for rioting that would have made it easier for law enforcement across the state to uh, make arrests for people involved in pro- various kinds of protest demonstrations. And that, although it could come back before Signy die, has so far not gotten traction. Your feelings about that?
3: Uh, We are very relieved that House Bill 505 didn't pass. Um, It would have made two people who show up to a protest that might have resulted in property damage guilty of rioting as a felony instead of a misdemeanor. And so uh, we think that this is an attempt to chill free speech. And it's very, very dangerous step for Georgia, um, which by our account is already in a lot of trouble.
1: Uh, Do you know what it was that stopped it from passing? It's the sort of legislation you would have thought a Republican legislature would have uh, gone for.
3: Well, Southern Center for Human Rights and Georgia Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, uh, from, from what we hear, uh, presented pretty compelling testimony about the risks.
1: Well, there you go. Congratulations. Uh, thank you, Tiffany Williams-Roberts, for being with us today. Anthony Michael Christ and Madeline Sigpen, thank you for your first appearance on Political Rewind. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. Hey, by the way, Thursday, we got a really special show. Eve Ensler, Uh, who is famous for having written the Vagina Monologues, which became a worldwide sensation, joins us to talk about women today on our show Thursday. See you then, but we'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy.